A Mother's Day greeting to all of you moms. God bless you today. Um, I feel very blessed in my life. I have two moms. I have one who uh, lovingly adopted me and raised me, and I call her mom. She's home with Jesus now. And I have one who gave birth to me and uh, chose to see that process through and do her best to make sure I landed safely. And I give thanks to God for her as well. And in recent years, I've come to know her and uh, through uh, messages that she listened to some years ago, she came to know Jesus Christ. So uh, praise the Lord for that. And uh, for all you moms, thank you so much for all that you do. We appreciate you. Someone asked me this week what I was preaching for Mother's Day. And I said, well, I'm preaching about the Pharisees and the scribes <laughs> rejecting the uh, purposes of God, uh, you know, in the Gospel of Luke. And it was like, really? Well, I have good news for you. Uh, it fits moms and everyone else. So it's a, it's a good message for the whole congregation. And uh, I hope you will take it that way. I could not leave this section of uh, John the Baptist and the uh, interaction uh, with, of his disciples with Jesus and Jesus' response to that without uh, spending one more week on a phrase that has um, kind of bothered me from the very beginning. Uh, as I read this passage, uh, and the more I thought about it, I think my uh, first response to it was a very emotional response. It was one of sadness. And then the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized that there's a principle here that is bigger than the Pharisees and the lawyers. Uh, there's something that uh, God wants to say to all of us, in this brief statement that Luke recorded for us in verse 30 of Luke chapter 7. And right in the, toward the end of that uh, interaction over John the Baptist, the scripture says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers, or the scribes, rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John the Baptist. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. When you think about that phrase, you realize there are a lot of implications that are wrapped up, implicit truths that are not said outright but clearly are part of the text just simply by the way it's said. And one of those uh, implicit truths that comes out as we read this is that God had a purpose for the Pharisees and the scribes. He had a plan for them. The, the Greek word behind purpose here um, is uh, the same as other words where uh, we get the concept of I will or I plan and it literally means that God had a plan for them. You know, we, we somewhat trivially say God 
has a plan for your life. But that's not trivial. He does have a plan for your life. He has purposes for you. And he had purposes for the Pharisees and for the scribes. He had a plan for them. And the other thing that stands out to us is they rejected that plan. God had something for them and they didn't accept it. And as a consequence of not accepting it, they found themselves in an adversarial position with their own very Messiah. The one who had come to redeem them, they found themselves at odds with. And so, you know, by this time, uh, they're getting into outright hostility as they're seeking to derail the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's because they rejected God's purposes for them in John the Baptist. You know, you can go back in um, the history of the nation of Israel, and we would be hard-pressed to say when this particular group of Pharisees uh, and lawyers kind of went off the wire. Um, we know that when the Israelites came back to the land of uh, Israel, of Palestine, and they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, and they began to restore the, the ruins and, and recover their national identity after the exile to Babylon, we recognize that they made finally a clear break with overt idolatry. All through the previous period of their history, they had had trouble worshiping other gods. They went up on the high places and they built idols and they, uh, they pursued other religions. And they were cured of that. After the return from captivity, um, they stayed true to the revelation of God through Moses. The problem is, is that they still missed the heart of God in the process. And as time went along, they became so focused on the law and so focused on doing religion the right way that they missed the relationship that God was offering them. And it was this very message that John the Baptist came proclaiming as he prepared the way for Messiah. He preached a baptism of repentance. And what he was trying to call Israel to recognize as a nation is that they had rejected a relationship with God. Yes, they were legalistically kind of uh, focused and they were intent on keeping the law but they were straining at gnats and swallowing camels all the time. And, and as a consequence, they were getting it wrong, and their heart was still unchanged. And John the Baptist came along preaching a baptism of repentance. And the Pharisees went to hear him. And they could not bring themselves to bend their knee in humility and repentance and be baptized. To do so would admit that they were not perfect. And they couldn't bear the thoughts of that. And as a consequence, they resisted John's baptism. And wherever that all got started, the fact is, 
at the baptism of John in, at the Jordan River, when the Pharisees, one after another of them, refused to uh, listen to the message. Their hearts became hardened, and God was offering them an opportunity which they rejected. He had a purpose for them. He had a plan. He wanted to call them back into intimacy. And they refused. And as a consequence of that, they found themselves hardened toward God. They had missed His purposes. And now they're in this adversarial relationship with Jesus. The danger that they fell into is a danger that all of us face. And before I go there to the application, I think we need to talk a little bit about theology because uh, I no sooner uh, talk about the Pharisees in this way than I hear some people beginning to quote biblical prophecy to me, saying this is the way it's going to be. God has predetermined that the Israelites would reject him and that they would crucify the, the, the very one who was their Messiah and put him to death and that he would die for our sins and rise again. And this was the plan and purpose of God. And how can you say that God had a, a different plan and purpose for the Pharisees when it was clearly his predictive prophetic purpose that Jesus Christ should be uh, crucified by his own people? And so we start to get kind of bollocked up in this whole business of God's sovereignty and man's freedom and how does that go together. And uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about theology this morning. I hope that doesn't put you off. <laughs> theology, in its simplest terms, is the study of God. Theos Logos, the study of God. When you get an ology behind something, you're studying it. And, and God is the subject here. And that's why we come, among other things, is to learn more about the character and nature of God. So theology is what we're supposed to be about. So hang in there with me for another 15 minutes or so. Then I'll get back to the application. How do we analyze biblically God's sovereignty and man's freedom when we're faced with issues like this? And some people try to draw the dividing line between two opinions that neither of which happen to be biblically sound. The first one is the idea that God is totally in control of everything. He pre-plans purposes and predestines everything that occurs. And that uh, it just kind of plays out in history according to his sovereign intent. The problem with that is that there is simply no logical way not to make him the responsible causative agent in sin if that's the case. If he predetermined that Adam and Eve should sin in order to unfold the gospel purposes, then he is responsible for their sin. If they had no choice in the matter, but they had to sin in that moment in order to allow the rest of God's plan to be unfolded, we find ourselves in the unenviable position of making God the one behind it all. And John Wesley had some rather 
um, sharp words to say about that when he said, Calvin's God is my devil. What he meant was, (laughs) my devil is the one who led man into sin, and if Calvin says God did that, then his God is my devil. Now, I'm not dissing Wesley or Calvin or any of them. Well, actually, I am. But um, my, my point is to bring us back to what is biblically true when we analyze it and say what really happened there. The other side of the coin is to say that man is free. He can do anything he wants to do. And the problem with that position is it brings us into chaos and completely strips God of any meaningful power. In fact, there's a whole movement today that is kind of like a, it's not new. I I had a professor that was flirting with it when I was back in school 40 years ago. It's called open theism. I don't know that they called it that then, but they've finally given it a name. And open theism means that God does not predetermine what people are going to do. They kind of do what they want to do. Because he's God, he has a pretty good idea of what they're going to do. Um, he can predict, but every once in a while they surprise him. And so uh, because he doesn't in- entirely know the future, he has to continue to evolve and adjust and adapt his plans according to the choices and and the freedom that human beings exercise. And so he's always uh, kind of changing tactics as we move along. And obviously the difficulty there is you have a God who has no power and who is left out of the loop of control and we're on our own down here and that's a very big mess to be in. I don't want to be on my own. (laughs) I... I want to know I want to know when bad things happen to me that God was kind of watching over the whole process and protecting and guarding as the scripture says God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear but with every temptation he will make a way of escape that you can endure it and if that verse is true then God has to be sovereign over my life So the question becomes what then is the real truth well Before we go there, I want to consider a couple of scriptural examples. One of them is Judas himself. Was it not predicted that one of Jesus' own would betray him? Wasn't this part of the plan? Wasn't it within the purposes of God that from within the inner circle of the twelve, one of his own disciples would betray him, and uh, as a result of that, he would be arrested and taken into custody Uh, by the Jews. Well, certainly we find it in predictive prophecy. But we also find that all along the way, Jesus is offering opportunities to Judas. And one of the things that, that startles us is at the Last Supper, at the very last event, the disciples are gathered around the table, and Jesus when the question filters its way up to him as they're discussing, Lord, who is it? Is it I that's going to betray you? They're confused. They can't imagine one of their inner circle being involved in this collusion with the Pharisees. And Judas has already made a deal with them. But he's still on the horns of a decision. And Jesus kind of whispers in an aside to John, it's the one 
that uh, dips his hand with me in the sop. And as one of the gospel writers puts it, Jesus himself dips in the bread into the, the stew, the sop that is there, and he offers it to Judas. Now, culturally, that was a significant act. In fact, in some Mideastern towns, this custom is still practiced where they gather around the, the pot and the, the men gather around the table and the host will dip the bread in and offer it to his guest and usually to the special guest first. In some towns, even today, the host will take the first bite and dip it in and put it in the mouth of the special guest, the favored guest, and recognize him as an extension of love and friendship, saying in essence, I will care for you, I will take care of you, I love you, and I value you. The interesting thing about that action is Jesus dipped in the sop and gave the morsel to Judas, is the scripture says, in that moment Satan entered his heart. Until that moment we did not have a firm resolve. But here is the last extension of grace, and it somehow hits Judas in such a way that he resolves that he will do this deed and gives himself over to Satan. And in fact, he leaves the company as Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And he leaves the company and he goes and he makes arrangements to lead the, the Pharisees and the Roman cohort to Jesus uh, at a time when he could be arrested in seclusion and they would not be exposed to the populace. I believe that Jesus, until the very last moment, was offering Judas an opportunity to repent. All the way to that very second. And friends, when Judas stands before God in the final judgment according to the scripture, he will not be able to say, it's your fault, I only did what you predestined me to do. In fact, he will have to say, you gave me every chance. You extended every opportunity. You reached out your hand of love to me in the last moment at the last supper. And I rejected you by my choice. That is the only answer that he can give. Another passage of Scripture that befuddle some is the passage in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 where the scripture says God desires all men all human beings to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth there are some today who believe that God has predestined people to hell for the specific purpose of demonstrating his glory in righteousness and judgment. As a matter of fact, the scripture does say he makes even the wicked to praise him. But the fact is, he doesn't make the wicked, he makes the wicked to praise him. He brings about his glory because of their sinful choices, but his heart's desire is revealed 
in the passage it said he longs for every human being to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why does Jesus delay his return? Because God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. He says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is clearly the desire, the passion, the heart of God that every man, woman, and child on the planet come to know Him and to be secure with Him eternally. And yet we know the vast majority of human beings will not be there in His presence, in the heavenly glory. Why? Because Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many are those who go down that trail. But narrow is the, great, the gate and state, straight is the way that leads to life eternal and only a few will find it. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. We have a divine impetus upon us to carry the gospel message to the ends of the earth to people that have never heard so that they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth is that many of them will reject the gospel and resist Him and die without Christ, facing an eternity separated from God. How do we reconcile these realities? It is the desire and longing of God's heart that every person be saved. It is the reality that most will not. What can we say about this? First of all, we can affirm from the Scripture that God knows all things, that He has planned the course of human history. He knows the choices we will make. And frankly, He limits us within the bounds of His plan, His overarching plan. We are not free to do whatever we want to do. God does, in fact, put barriers, boundaries around our lives, and He keeps us uh, within the, the stream of His eternal purposes. The fact is, not one of you here this morning will be able to mess up the day that Jesus Christ comes back. You can't do it. The devil can't do it. The Antichrist can't do it. Nothing can stop or thwart God's purposes from being accomplished. But that does not affect you and me in the daily choices of our life relative to our relationship with God. And God has certainly undertaken to ensure the unfolding of certain plans. Secondly, human beings are totally depraved and apart from grace we're incapable of true goodness and spiritual understanding. Our choices are made under the constraints of bondage to the law of sin and death. We're incapable of understanding truth because we live in darkness and are blinded in our understanding. This is the case of unbelievers. 
Listen to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Every single person has gone astray. There is none, not one, that does good. There is none that is righteous. There is no one who seeks for God. You may stop me and say, wait a minute, I know a lot of people that are looking for God. They're on a quest. They're looking for religion. They're looking for some kind of definition that will satisfy their own mind. But the true and living God who holds them responsible for their sin, they're not looking for him. Their eyes are blinded to that. I'm sorry, Todd, what did you say? Oh, no one apart from Jesus Christ. I'm looking, but apart from Jesus Christ. You've got to hang in there with me, okay? Hang in there with me till we get to the end. There's none that seeks for God. This is what the Scripture says. There's none that's looking for Him. The, the poison of asp, it says, of, of poisonous vipers is under their tongues. They're constantly moving in the direction of destruction. How is it possible for someone so lost to be saved? Paul says to the Corinthians in the second letter that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who are unbelievers so that they cannot see the truth. And he writes to the Corinthians in his first letter, the natural man cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. How then is it possible for a person who hears the truth and the message of Jesus Christ possibly to give a response? And the answer to that is God's grace accompanies the proclamation of His Word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the Word of God. How shall they hear unless there is a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who preach good news, who bring good news. The truth of the fact is that as we share our faith in Jesus Christ and people proclaim the truth of the gospel message, the Holy Spirit accompanies that witness. That's what Jesus meant when he said, and he will come upon you. My Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, you will be my witnesses. And as the gospel message is preached, the Holy Spirit opens eyes. The Holy Spirit releases bondage. The Holy Spirit gives an opportunity, an infusion of grace, a moment where the truth can be recognized. And God beckons with an invitation, will you follow me? Will you turn to me? And we have a real choice to make in that moment. We have a decision. And we are enabled by God in His grace to make that decision. Now for those, Todd, who respond affirmatively, who say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Our will is literally freed from bondage to the law of sin and death. We become free in Jesus Christ. 
We become indwelt and filled by His Spirit. We are enabled to follow the grace of God and to follow His will and purposes. And God, the Holy Spirit, still comes to us as His followers, giving us opportunities, issuing calls. Will you follow me? Will you make this decision? We come to a fork in the road and the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go right. Will you go right with me? And in that moment, we have a choice to make. It's a very real choice. But by the same token, we already have a company in grace. The Holy Spirit of God never asks us to do anything that He will not empower us to do. He never brings us to a decision point that He will not give us grace to believe. He promises to be with us in that moment. It is easy to say yes because He has made it so. But we have a real opportunity, a privilege, dare I say, to say no to God. It is one of the things that is most unfathomable to me. That as a follower of Jesus Christ and a lover of God, I can come to a moment where God asks something of me. And I can look Him in the eye and say, No! And continue to breathe. It's beyond my comprehension. But it's a fact that God allows us the privilege of choosing His way because we love Him. Or resisting Him in stubbornness. But here's the tragedy. You come to that fork in the road and God beckons you to a decision and you choose the other path. And the further you go, the further you find yourself away from God's purposes. The Pharisees rejected the purpose that God had for them. And they were on the wrong path. And in our society today, our culture, the, the way we think, uh, with all of the happy Hollywood endings, we always want to believe, well, that's okay, I get do-overs with God. All I have to do is just check in again somewhere down the road and he'll put me back on the right path and everything will be just fine. That's a deception. It is true that God can recover lost things. It is true that God can redeem. It is true that God can heal. It is not true that he can erase the past and undo the tragedy that you have caused. You make the wrong choice, you date the wrong person, you marry the wrong person, you take the wrong path in life, you make a moral choice that leads you off the path somewhere down the road. You come to a place and you wake up. 
And you can't go back. You cannot go back. You can repent. You can find new grace with God. He can put you back in fellowship with himself. But you may have forfeited things you will never recover because you rejected God's purpose for your life. Sometimes people never come back, particularly in regard to salvation. The scripture says the one who stiffens his neck, having been often reproved, will one day find himself cut off and without remedy. That's why it's so terribly important, friends, that we keep praying for lost people. The Holy Spirit responds to our prayers of intercession. He puts us in the lives of people that need Him. And He calls us to pray for them. He lays them on our heart. That His work with them will go on. That, that daily scripture will come to their mind. That people will come into their lives. We have the privilege of interceding. Because when that moment comes and the burden is gone and the Holy Spirit has stopped speaking, the destiny may in fact be sealed. In that moment, Satan entered the heart of Judas. He made his final decision. There was no coming back. The Pharisees rejected God's purposes for them. And they set themselves on a course from which there was no return. Friends, is God calling you to do something? Is He speaking to you? Has He laid out a purpose before you? Don't reject His purposes. He wants to bless you. He wants to fill you with His presence. He wants to make your life full of His glory. Don't reject His purpose. There are consequences. And in every choice, God gives grace. He does not mock us. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher and a great Calvinist. And in those days, people paid a lot of attention to theology far more than we do. And there would always be those in his congregation who were struggling with the salvation question, and they wondered, I don't know if I'm predestined or not. And Spurgeon would always say, is the Holy Spirit of God knocking on your heart's door right now? Is he speaking to you? Is he calling you? Is he wooing you? You don't have to worry about that question. You must respond to God. This is the moment. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. 
Whether you are in a position where you need to respond to Jesus to follow him, or whether as a follower of Christ you need to choose his purposes for you, the grace is available and the Holy Spirit is present to guide your path. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would recognize with soberness the importance of paying attention to the wooing of your spirit, the calling that you give us, that we would be in a place where we would respond, yes, Lord, yes, yes. I choose you today. Thank you for giving us the grace to make that decision. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.